Hey, good morning and welcome. We're so glad to be together uh, this morning. And uh, today's Palm Sunday. It's exciting to be together on Palm Sunday. And uh, this is Holy Week. This is the beginning of eight days that shook the world. And we are excited this week. You know, we are going to have a Good Friday service this Friday. And we're also going to be together next Sunday for Easter Sunday. And, you know, this is a great opportunity. This is a wonderful opportunity to invite a friend uh, to be a part of church. Because, look, all it requires is for you to send a link. I mean, come on, it cannot get any better. And, you know, they can't say I'm busy because none of us have anything to do. We're all stuck in our houses, right? So this is just as good an opportunity as it can be. We're excited to be together next Sunday for Easter Sunday. We're excited for a Good Friday service. And we're excited to be together this morning for Palm Sunday. And if you are just joining us for the first time, I want to say welcome to you. We're glad that you are here. This morning, we are continuing in our series called Anchored. And the idea of this series is how do we become people who have a certain kind of stability and strength when life is changing, when there's a sea change, uh, and, and especially in this unique moment in history. And it is a unique moment. You know, this is coming to the end of Lent, and Lent is a season when Christians pull away from distractions and luxuries in order to anticipate, in order to wait with anticipation for the arrival of Easter. But it's also a weird time. It's a weird time because of all the austerity measures. You know, there, uh, our society right now, there's no shows, there's no movies, there's no, no, no um, sports and no shopping. It's a, it's a strange time. And so, uh, you know, our typical Christian Lenten practices are paltry compared to the way in which society has stripped us of these things, these, these uh, things in our lives. And then on top of that, forget luxuries. I mean, many of us are wondering if we can even have toilet paper. You know, it's a strange time. And on top of that, we have the situation where uh, there, there isn't really a clear outcome. We don't know what we're waiting for or when it ends or what's on the other side of that. And so it's a strange time indeed. And I want to ask you, what do you make of this time? What do you make of this time? How do you view this time? Is this a time that is a throwaway time? Are you waiting for life to go back to usual? Is this waiting time a time for just to fill it up with meaningless things or just fill it up with binge watching on Netflix? Or is it about spending this time uh, uh, just simply investing in hours of social media and Amazon Prime and 24-hour news? Listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah 40 says, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up like, uh, with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. The Bible says that waiting is actually a very important thing. That waiting is a unique thing and that God can take seasons of waiting and create an incredible transformation in our lives. See, the Bible views waiting very differently than just a throwaway time. The Bible says that if we take our seasons of waiting and if we turn to God in those seasons of waiting, they can become this fertile soil where we become people of greatness, where we become people of poise, where we become people of strength. And to see this, we're going to turn to the book of Habakkuk this morning. Um, Habakkuk, we see this happening in Habakkuk's life. You know, Habakkuk, it's a short book. In the first chapter, we see that Habakkuk gets this bad news, 
this ominous news, something's coming, and he's thrown into disarray. And then in chapter 2, at the heart of the book, we see that Habakkuk begins waiting on God. And then by the end of Habakkuk, we see that Habakkuk has become a person of great strength and fortitude and very much uh, a person of stability, such that he says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though there's no fruit on the vine, I'll rejoice in the Lord. So in other words, even if there's economic calamity, even if, because this is an agricultural community, even if the entire economy is wiped out and there's nothing left, I will rejoice in the Lord. And then he says this, my feet have become like the deer's feet that tread on high places. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen a, a video clip of a mountain goat, or if you've ever seen a mountain goat, but they're amazing. You know, mountain goats have this capacity to traverse cliffs that you and I would definitely die on. We'd be freaked out the entire time, and then we would just die. <laughs> but that's not a mountain goat. You know, a mountain goat can just stand there and then just jump across these, these crazy situations, and they just have poise and stability and strength. And that's what Habakkuk is saying. Habakkuk became a person with poise and stability and strength in the midst of this difficult time of transition. So how did he do this during this period of waiting? How did he do That's what we're going to look at this morning. How do we become this kind of person? How do we do it? Well, it's waiting on God, but, but that's the question. What does it look like? So we're going to look at three questions this morning. First, the one question. What are the circumstances that are just right for waiting on God? What's the right soil in order to grow ourselves? What is it that we need in order to become people of greatness? When are the circumstances right? So there's the one question and the what question. What are the features of waiting on God? What kind of things are involved in waiting on God? And then finally, the how question. How does waiting on God change us? How does it transform us? So when do we wait on God? Uh, what does it look like to wait on God? What, are the, what is involved? And then how does it change us? That's where we're going this morning. First, when do we wait on God. When do we wait on God? And the one key element here is we wait on God during times when the outcome is not clear. When the outcome is not clear. And of course, there's many periods in our lives where the outcome is not clear. If you're a student and school just got dismissed and, you know, you're just, you're just waiting around like, okay, now I'm just sitting here, you know. Or if you just graduated, you graduated from college and the, and the economy is shot and you need a job. Or if you had a job and you lost it, you don't know how you're going to pay rent. Or if you're sitting there and, and, and you don't know if you should get married to somebody uh, and you're wondering about that, the outcome's not clear. Or maybe you've wanted to get married and it hasn't happened and it feels like you've been in this waiting pattern for a long time. Sometimes it's not just one season, sometimes it's a long season. Maybe you are married and your, set, your spouse sinks into depression. Or maybe you've wanted to get uh, have a child and you can't get pregnant and the outcome's not clear. You know, we can go down the list. Maybe you have your business sinking as a result of some kind of uh, economic fallout or maybe your retirement is dwindling with the stock market collapsing. There's lots of times where the outcome is not clear and during these times, these are times where, guess what? I know this is a gestalt shift, but guess what? The fertile soil is there. The circumstances have arrived. It's the right time to begin waiting on God. The circumstances are right. And when we look at the book of Psalms, we actually hear about waiting on God more than any other book. There's more verses on waiting on God. And why is that? Because David is going through his life and as he transitions through periods of orientation to disorientation to reorientation, 
He is constantly bringing his life before God. And we see this in the book of Psalms. So we have periods where David is in a season of orientation. He knows where his life is going. He knows what's happening. He feels God's proximity. Life makes sense. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Psalm 23. But then there's periods of disorientation where the outcome's not clear, where David's confused and he doesn't know what God is doing. Psalm 88, why have you hidden your face from me, O God? And then he waits on God during that time and then God brings him into a new season. And then there's seasons of reorientation all the way up into Psalm 123, where David says, if it hadn't been for the Lord, we would have drowned. And so through this whole period of transition, David constantly turns to God. And so we see him waiting on God. Psalm 41, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry, which reminds us that oftentimes in these seasons of not knowing, they're painful seasons. There's seasons of lament where, we, where we're losing something. There's a transition. We've lost something. So there's lament. We need to be lamenting. We need to be processing that. And then we're not sure what's going to happen. And during this time, we cry out to God. Now, it's not always a painful season. Some people during this time of unknowing are also finding new margins. Some people are finding a chance in this transition to, you know, spend more time at home with family and to cook and they're getting a break, you know. Um, so it's not necessarily always a painful time, but it's quite often a painful time. And because of that, when we see people waiting on God, it's often during painful, difficult times. The book of Job is a book that records the story of one man's saga of waiting on God when his whole life imploded, where he lost his health, where he lost his job, where he lost his family, he lost everything. And he's just laying in the rubble. He doesn't know which way to go forward. And he's crying out to God. Well, the book of Habakkuk is oftentimes called a mini Job. It's called a mini Job because it's only three chapters. That's why we're doing it today. I mean, can you imagine if we can jump into the, the book of Job? It's just massive. It takes us all morning. It's three simple chapters. And if you haven't read already, you should read it this week. And in it, we see him asking the why question. It's a very personal personal account of someone struggling. You know, all the other prophets, they come along and they speak very bluntly to people about what God wants of them. But when we see the book of Habakkuk, we see a man who is speaking very bluntly and directly with no nonsense to God. He's being emotionally real, emotionally honest, and he's crying out to God. He's addressing, addressing God with pure, pure emotion. In fact, the book starts off, chapter one, verse one, with this cry, how long, O Lord? How long, right? How long is this going to go on, God? How long do we have to wait around, God? And he starts complaining about things in society. How long, God? And then he goes into, how long, God, is there going to be the kind of political um, uh, corruption and cycles of violence and spiritual malaise? And it's all very domestic. He's crying out regarding Israel. So his focus at the beginning of the book, right off the bat, is really what's going on within his own nation. Remember 2019? Remember the kind of complaints we had, right? Well, that's 2019. But in verses 5 to 11, God says, hey, listen, Habakkuk, you have no idea. Actually, something is, is coming. It's going to get worse. God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. Something is coming that your way that you would not believe if I told you. And we would not believe if, if someone would have told us that we would be in the situation we're in today. So Habakkuk was crying out about the kind of 
you know, complaints of everyday society here in Israel. And then suddenly he cries out to God and then God says, actually, there's something happening on a global scale. There's something happening that's much bigger. Something that makes your, your uh, garden variety complaints seem paltry. It's not just domestic. It's going to involve the nations. A destructive force is coming your way, Habakkuk. Something is coming and the world is not going to be the same. And then in verses uh, 1, 12 to 17, we hear Habakkuk's shock and his confusion. And he's wondering, I thought you were eternal, God. I thought you were omnipotent. Why is this happening? What's going on? Are we just fish stuck in a net? Are we just animals that get destroyed by some force? Are we just bugs? One he's like, are we just bugs that are getting squashed? Are we just creatures on the ground, God? I mean, it's very similar to our own question. Like, are we just animals that get wiped out by this random violence? Why, God? Why is this happening? And that brings us to verses one to four of chapter two, which is at the heart of the book. And those are the verses I want to focus in on this morning with you. See, in one to four, we see that, that Habakkuk turns from this, uh, in this state of orientation and this ominous not knowing when this thing is going to end and what's going on and something global and the world will never be the same. And he directs all of his attention to God. And he begins this process of waiting on God. And I know we throw that term around and that's a danger, but I want us to see this morning, there's something very specific that happens when we're waiting on God. In fact, it involves four key features. So let's look at what, in, what it involves. What does waiting on God actually involve? Let's look at that this morning. Uh, these four key features. And the first one we see in verse one, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. In other words, I'm going to focus and reorient my life towards listening to God. That is going to be, this is going to be a season of uniquely listening and interacting with God in this process of disorientation. Psalm uh, 62, which by the way, if you're looking for a great passage to memorize during this time, Psalm 62 is all about waiting on God. And it starts off, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. For God alone, my soul waits in silence, which is a reminder that during this season, we are going to need to create space and margin for us to listen. That's what, the, that's what the whole watchtower is about. See, he doesn't just go along with life as usual. He's not just in the warp and woof of the city life. He goes and he actually changes his entire focus by creating some margin. The watchtower is a place of margin. The tower is a place where he can have some reprieve. Now, in many ways, all of us have been freed of distractions, right? I mean, many of us are just sitting at home. <laughs> like, okay, it's Sunday. It's the same thing as Saturday. It's gonna be the same thing as Monday, right? And so now we've created new distractions, right? We've got new distractions going on. We've got the 24-7 news channels that are going, and we've got social media, you know, and some people are just immersing themselves in binge-watching, or, you know, and we can, we can just keep distractions going during this season. And there's a real danger in that, because you can't wait on God and wait on social media and 24-7 news and your phone at the same time. We are social creatures. We are those fish. We are those bugs. We are social creatures. We work together. Actually, I'm not sure if fish are social, but we, we tend to be social creatures, right? Birds are social creatures. We flock together. And these different 
uh, media, and media knows this, and media gets paid by how many viewers it has. And media is invested in us spending our attention and our time and our anxiety and our focus on the next story, the next story, the next story. Same thing with social media. This is how they get their, their money. And we need to be wise during this time because there is actually an entire mechanism happening that is meant to draw us in and keep us continually on this treadmill of keeping our focus and our attention on just simply the next news source, the next update. And if that's how we're living life during this time, we are not in the tower. We're not in the tower. To get in the tower means that we need to have margin. We need to create margin in our lives. We need to put down the phone. You know, when, when, when uh, if 15 years ago, someone had said, you know, 15 years from now, everyone's going to have a little box, and they're going to walk around, and they're going to check it hundreds of times a day, and they're going to constantly keep it with them, and they're going to go to bed with it, and they're going to, and they're going to, we're going to give you one of these. I would be like, no, I don't want it. Keep it away. Keep it away. But now we just assume that's the way we live our lives. And, this, and this, is, this is, and how do we even justify that? If you listen to the news sources, there's always a certain kind of social justice kind of spin. There's always a moral edge to it. You have to be devoted. You have to stay in tune. You have to, you know, we need to solve this crisis. You can't expect that level of devotion, that almost religious devotion without creating some kind of moral universe. And the Bible can free us from that moral universe and open up an entirely different universe. And it's called waiting on God. It's called waiting on God. Now, it's not enough just to create margin. We actually need to be engaged in things. You know, the word waiting can feel like passivity, but waiting is not passivity. You know, when we hear the word waiting, we should think of the word waiter. What does a waiter do or a waitress? Waiters and waitresses are busy. They're focused. They're getting things done. They're moving. They're active. To be waiting on God is to actually be doing things. It involves work. It involves effort. It involves actually doing things. And there's many different ways we can wait on God during this time. You know, for some of us, it might mean that we are going to start walking through our neighborhood every day and praying house by house for our neighbors that they will know the love of God in Jesus Christ. For some of us, it means that we are going to take this time where maybe there's loss. Maybe we're dealing with, with confusion. Maybe we're dealing with difficult financial choices. We are going to go ahead and itemize very carefully a list of the things that we are grieving and we're going to bring those to God and we're going to do that over and again. Maybe we're going to go and we're going to take, we're going to take that walk and we're going to bring those to God. Or we're going to find a space in our room and we're going to bring those to God. You know, for some of us, maybe it means that we are going to uh, go into our garden on a daily basis and meditate. Just get, get out of the house and just meditate on God's goodness. We're going to immerse ourselves in scripture or memorize scripture, but we are going to reconnect with God. Maybe for some of us, we're going to have seasons throughout the day where we turn our palms up. And we're going to say the same thing that the Canaanite woman said. And she cried out and said, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Or Bartimaeus who said, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And when we're doing this, when we're creating margin, we are in the tower. We're in the tower. Are you in the tower? Do you have a tower? Or are you just simply in the city? Why are there towers? There are towers because without those towers, we end up losing any kind of vantage point. 
You know, cities build towers because if you're just in the city and you can't see outside the walls or outside the city, all you know is what's right there. But they built towers, why? Because so if you have a tower, you can, see, you can see if there's a weather system coming, you can see if the sun is rising or setting, you can see if there's an enemy, enemy army on its way. If there's an enemy army at the door, you can see that there's reinforcements on the way. It gives you the opportunity for a new vantage point. And that's what Habakkuk is talking about. He is going to go into that tower. And Jesus was constantly going to the tower. You look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was constantly, uh, when, especially when there's crowds, when there was a social media frenzy, right? When there was crowds and there's all this, Jesus would always find a quiet place. He'd slip away in order to reground, in order to create margin because he wanted to walk with God. He wanted to wait on God because he knew he needed God. When Jesus was in the garden, he was waiting on God. He went outside to pray. And this is important. You know, one author says, you never just suffer the things that you suffer. You always suffer the interpretation of the things that you suffer. You never just suffer the things that you suffer. You always suffer the interpretation of the things that you suffer. And if you do not have a tower, it will be a totally different experience because you won't have the vantage point in order to interpret what's going on in a way that is going to change the experience. So we need a tower, all right? Um, but what do we do when we get in the tower? What do we do when we get in the tower? Well, we see this uh, again, in verse one, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me concerning my complaint, concerning my complaint. This is fascinating. You know, Bacchus is saying, I am not gonna drop my complaint. I'm not gonna drop the tension of the situation I'm in. I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna seek God, but I'm not gonna just simply escape reality. You know, there's two problems that we fall into when we're dealing with unresolved tension. There's two temptations. There's two ways we can go, and both of them are not helpful. On the one hand, there's romanticism. There's the attempt to just simply just smooth it all over and to get rid of the complaint, to, to just simply just kind of wash it away and, and try to live with some kind of quick closure by simply seeing everything's going to be okay. You see this right now with all of the silver lining memes. You know, I, under, I understand the silver lining memes, you know, we have the 24-7 news cycle, which is keeping us in fear. So then we have, the 20, we have the silver lining memes, which then counterbalance that. And that feels like some kind of help. But are they true? Are we going to come out of this just, you know, so much better? Are we going to be people that can cook and people that love spending time with our kids and love just being at home and love exercising at home? And is the environment going to be better? And it's just going to be so good. Hey, let's hope so, right? Let's hope so. But there's no guarantees of that. Maybe this will just be a hiccup, but we don't know for sure. I think that a lot of the silver lining memes come from this kind of need for progress that secularism requires. You know, secularism is the idea that this world is all that there is. And if you're going to live with the idea that your only hope is found in this world, you better hope that the world is getting better and better. Otherwise, you have no hope. And so you have to believe in this dogma of progress. But the reality is, is there are no guarantees. You know, if we look at history, and we can see here that you had the, you know, in the first part of the 20th century, um, there was a series of things that people went through. 
You know, after World War I, people thought we made it through World War I, but then they had the Spanish influenza in 1918. And, and they thought, okay, we made it through that. And then there was the Great Depression. And then, oh, we made it through that. And then there was World War II. So there's no guarantees that things are just going to get better and better. And I know that when we've had a good run for a long time, it's tempting for us to think that things are just going to get better and better. But there's no guarantees. Now, what am I saying? I'm not saying, on the other hand, some kind of doomsdayism, all right? Because that's the other hand. You have romanticism, but then you have doomsdayism. And these are people that say, I know why this is happening. God is punishing us, or God is sending us a sign, or you know, God is warning us of something, and I know what it is, right? It would be presumptuous to say that this is just a hiccup, but it would also be presumptuous to say that we know that bad times are coming and this is just the beginning. The reality is both of these knee-jerk reactions, both the romanticism and, and, and this doomsdayism, come from the same need in order to have a quick solution, in order to know the future, in order to have a resolution, in order to be able to have some kind of silver bullet that answers it, in order to not live in the tension. But life is more difficult. Life is more complex. Life does not have such nice, neat little packaging. And the Bible tells us that. If when you read books like Habakkuk and Job and the Psalms, you realize that life does not simply come with a Hallmark card. It doesn't come wrapped up. Life is complex. And probably there's some things that are going to be much worse than before and some things that are much better and it's all going to be mixed together in a million different ways. And there's going to be people in our own congregation. Some people are going to suffer as a result of this in ways that we as a body are going to need to pull together and we should start praying right now for who those people are that are going to go through tremendous difficulty. And some people are going to go through this and they are going to feel like, wow, I got some margin in my life. I was able to spend time with my kids and they're going to come out of this feeling great. And probably both those things are going to happen, right? Because it's just more complex. So waiting on God involves intentional listening, involves engaging in practices, involves uh, sitting in the tension, um, and then it's going to require patience. The third thing is it requires patience. Look what he says in verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. And God says, if it seems slow, wait for it. Wait for it. So God warns Habakkuk up front while he's in that watchtower, you're going to need some patience. This is not going to be a quick fix. This is going to be a bit of a journey here, Habakkuk. Now, why does God say that? Why does God say it's going to be difficult? Because it's going to be difficult. <laughs> it's simple, right? <laughs> Duh, right? Uh, I, I used to work graveyard at UPS when I was in college. And believe me, every night I was waiting for the end of that graveyard, right? Uh, and then I would go straight into a chemistry class. And then I was waiting for the end of that chemistry class, right? My GPA went, but I had to just hang in there for that one season because I needed the money, right? I had to wait for it. And, and here's a reality check is we are entering into a time where, I mean, I don't know how many days we are into this, but we don't know how long it's going to go. And we need to gear ourselves up for a journey with God during this time in which we are going to wait for it. There's going to be times where we're going to be tempted to leave our post. We're going to be tempted to get out of the tower. We're going to be tempted to say, forget the tower. 
right? We're tempted to completely abandon the tower because we've lived in a culture of convenience. We've lived where you can just go to Trader Joe's and there's no line, you know? We lived in a culture where there was no waiting, where you knew there was toilet paper, right? That was the culture we lived in. And now we're in this strange place where we can't avoid waiting, but it's an amazing opportunity. This is the opportunity because waiting on God is what makes people great. So it's, this, it's almost like we can't avoid this opportunity. Well, we can. What do we do? We avoid it by escaping it. Now, this is a part of the sermon that I feel sad about, but I actually need to uh, confront Dr. Seuss. I grew up on Dr. Seuss. I love Dr. Seuss. I'm not going to lie. You know, Dr. Seuss is great. And this is actually an image from, oh, the places you'll go. And when I graduated uh, from college, somebody gave me that book as a gift. It was very kind of them. Um, and, uh, but there's a really interesting section in, oh, the places you'll go, where it talks about this guy, uh, he's going through his life's journey and he gets into this slump. And then it says this, you can get so confused that you'll start to race down long wiggled roads at a break necking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space, headed, I fear, towards a most useless place, the waiting place for people who are waiting. Waiting for a train to go, a plane to go, a rain to go, snow to snow, a yes or no, a hair to grow. Just waiting. For a fish to bite, to fly a kite, for Uncle Jake, for a better break, for a pair of pants, for another chance, just waiting. No, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape. Somehow you'll escape and all that waiting and staying and you'll find bright places where boom bands are playing. Do you hear the narrative here? Waiting is what you need to get away from. Waiting is wrong. And if you're smart, you'll learn how to avoid waiting. That's the goal. Get away from waiting. Escape. These are deep narratives in our culture. But we escape at our own peril. We escape and we are going to miss opportunities that God has for us in this season. Of course, we, you know, we want the boom bands. And the boom bands are, are in your house. The boom bands are binge watching on Netflix and Amazon Prime all day. Maybe the boom bands is you're tempted with pornography or online gaming. Uh, there's any number of boom bands. Maybe some of you are just tempted to eat all day. These are boom bands that escape the waiting that God has for us during this time. And they get us out of the tower. So God says, be patient, wait for it, watch out. It's going to be a struggle. Put one foot in front of the other, get ready for this. And the reason is just not for suffering's sake, but because our souls are gonna be formed in this. So the opposite of the easy solution and quick fix of escapism is this. And this is our final thing you need, faith. Waiting on God involves the humility of faith. And we see this in verse four. Look what it says. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by faith. This is an amazing verse. Paul uses it. It's all over the Bible. I just want to focus in on something here. There's a contrast between those whose soul is puffed up and those who live by faith. Now, when you look at the uncertainties of life, it seems to be saying you have one of two choices. You can either put your confidence in yourself, you know, nothing's gonna get me, I'm gonna work through this, I'll figure it out, and you can start puffing up yourself. And that's called soul puffing, all right? It's kind of a cool 
quiet. That should be like the name of a band or something. I don't know, soul puffing. But, uh, you know, you start puffing up your soul. You know, I think of uh, certain rap artists that are like, you know, I did it like this and I did it like that and I'm so bad and no one can touch me. That's called soul puffing. The Bible talks about it, right? So uh, the Babylonians were the ultimate soul puffers, right? Soul puffers are typically bullies, you know? They just, they, they build themselves up and then they have to exert themselves through violence. That's all soul puffing, right? <clears throat> Soul puffing is actually just simply the beginning of soul coughing, according to verse 5, because the only way that you can keep this going is if you actually start killing a part of yourself. It talks about those who do soul puffing and build themselves up in the midst of insecurity of uncertain futures as really never being able to rest and that they turn to self-medication such as wine. And that's a whole other sermon. We can do a whole sermon on the, on the perils of soul puffing. All right. So be careful because we'll be tempted to turn to soul puffing to this time. But the opposite of soul puffing is a life of faith. See, in order to make sure that your soul is right within you, that you are right within yourself, instead of asserting some kind of capacity or imagination that nothing can get to you and you're this and you're that, the opposite of that is to feed on faith and to heal your soul through faith, the humility of faith. But the righteous, those who are right within themselves, they shall live by faith. Faith leads to being right within yourself. Faith is a healing agent in periods of uncertainty that heals the human soul. We can see this in James chapter four, verse 13 to 15. He says, come now, you say, tomorrow or today we'll go to such and such a town and spread a, a, spend a year there and then we'll trade and we'll make a profit and then we'll do this, we'll do that. And it says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Wow, that is the posture of the humility of faith. You know, we, lead, we read passages like that and we think, wow, well, okay. But you know, that's reality today. If, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. A person of faith can sit in that tension. They can live without knowing whether or not they will live or what they will do. And they have the capacity to be there because of their faith. Faith is what gives us that. And James is talking about the danger of this assumed omniscience, the assumed omniscience. You know, it's such a relief to lay down our assumed omniscience. We live life with an assumed omniscience. There's so many things we don't know. There's so many things that people who are very wise don't know right now. I mean, we, we, we're, the CDC is constantly changing things, right? It just shows us that we don't know. We have limitations as human beings. And faith grants us the ability to be open to our not knowing, to be honest about our not knowing, to recognize what we know and what we don't know. And how does it do that? You know, uh, I did a, a master's degree in philosophy. And one of the things that happens when you study philosophy is that you constantly ask these questions that takes uh, things that you take for granted and challenges them. So for instance, one of the things would be like, how do you know you're not a brain in a vat? Well, I never thought that maybe I was a brain in a vat. 
Okay, well, um, maybe, a, what if I was a brain in a vat and there was a scientist with electrodes and actually everything I see, I'm just in the matrix and there, actually there's just a brain in a vat, there's no real me and this is all an illusion. And you do these kind of exercises, which seems silly and stupid, but what they do is they expose our limitations of knowledge. And if you go through the process of asking those kind of crazy questions, which mo most of you are not philosophical and you avoid those questions like the plague, but if you go through the process of asking those questions, something begins to happen. You get freed up from this, uh, uh, number one, the illusion that you know so much, you realize how fragile knowledge is. And at the same time, if you do it well, I believe that you come to see certain things with incredible certainty. A very small number of things, you, you know less and less, but the things you know, you know better. And that's what it means to be a person of faith. That as we look at the uncertainty of the future, God's promises become something that we know better and better. They become things that we know we can base our life on. And that gives us a certain kind of stability. And it allows us to be realistic about the world. It clears our minds and gives us the capacity to sleep at night. We don't need to know what this future will be because our life is not bound up in those things. All right, let's begin bringing the horses into the stable. We've looked at the when. When is the right circumstance? And guess what? This is the right circumstance for waiting on God. This is when we want to strike. This is the moment, okay, for waiting on God. What does it look like? We looked at those four things, and it involves intentional listening, and it involves practices, and it involves sitting in the tension, it involves faith. We looked at those. But then maybe you're asking the question, like, how? How does this transform us? How does it change us? What does it do? What's the process? How do you take this lump of coal, which is our heart, and in, and, and in the darkness and in the pressure of unknowing, turn that lump of coal into a diamond? How does that actually work? And the answer really can be said like this. It's all about single-heartedness. See, it's a process of becoming single-hearted. Soren Kierkegaard said, can you think of anything more dreadful that your nature might be resolved into a multiplicity. No, Soren, I'd never thought about that. Okay, well, let's ask it again. Can you think of anything more dreadful than that your nature might be resolved into a multiplicity? What is he saying? He's saying, can you imagine that your life is scattered and there's so many things you need to know and there's so many X, Y, and Z and you, you want this and that and this needs to work out and, and your life is scattered. And then suddenly what's happened is all these things have been taken out and we don't know the future. And there's a chance in this process, if we wait on God to become single-hearted, single-hearted. A single-hearted person is a person whose heart has been purified. Why? Well, you start off and you're waiting on the, for, for this. You're waiting on the Lord for this or for that. You want certain things to happen. You start off waiting on the Lord and you're, you're waiting for God to, to answer this prayer or waiting for these particular outcomes. And if you sit in your tower, if you wait and you continue to wait and you sit in your tower and you live in the tension, something begins to happen. And what is that? Is that as you sit there, slowly you, become, you get in this process where you realize that all you really want is God. All you really want is God. And you begin to release and abandon these other things that create a multiplicity within us and your heart becomes single-hearted. The psalmist says in Psalm 62.1, for God alone, my soul waits. For God alone. My favorite verse in the Bible, life first, Psalm 27.4, one thing, 
One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord. One thing. During this time of waiting, God can create in us a heart that wants one thing. The book of Habakkuk is a mini Job. I've said that, you know, and at the beginning of the book of Job, Satan comes with a very interesting accusation. He says, you see your servant Job? Yeah, it looks like he loves you. looks like he serves you. looks like he wants you. But really what he wants is he wants the things you give him. You, it comes with benefits. Knowing you comes with benefits. And, you know, there's something right about what Satan is saying. Satan is actually, he's basically right about us. You know, most of us, when we come to God and we first come to the Christian faith, we come because there's things we, we want. We want forgiveness. We want to be free of our guilt. We want to know that there's a hope beyond this life. We want to be broken of an addiction. There's any number of things that we come seeking God for when we first become Christians. And that's fine. That's fine as far as it goes. But it better not stay there. It better not stay there. And here's why. If it stays there, then we become hypocrites. You know, when you first meet somebody, maybe you're attracted to them and you draw and you start to love them and, and next thing they're in your life. And let's say that there's certain perks that come with knowing that person. And, and, and you say you love them and you're in a relationship, but then if you leave them, as soon as all those perks drop off, what, what does that show? It shows that you were actually a hypocrite. You didn't really love them. You loved what they gave you. And if somebody did that to you, you would be outraged. I'd be outraged. This is dehumanizing. You objectified me. You didn't want me. You didn't love me. You wanted what I gave you. You see, real love is tested in moments when the beloved has nothing to give us except for themselves. One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house. I just want you, God. I just want you. It's in times like this that God is asking, do you love me? Or do you just love the things I can give you? And this is a time where greatness is born. Because if we say, Lord, I want to love you above everything else. Lord, I want my life to be about you. Knowing you and loving you. Our souls were made for God. And everything else we think is going to make it will not make it. Our souls are made for God. And when our soul is filled with God and longs for God alone and that singleness of heart begins, then suddenly we become like those mountain goats. Some, some of you thought, I didn't know I was supposed to become like a mountain goat. Yes, you get that stability, that poise, that capacity to, to, to travel along and traverse a cliff without anxiety. This is a scary time. There is precipices all over. But if you wait on God, you can become that mountain goat. But there's one more thing I need to warn us of. You say, okay, I want that, I want that. It's not enough just simply to practice the practices. There's one more added secret sauce that I need to point you to. You know, if you look at the life of Jesus, you know, Jesus lived a life which was really all about waiting on us. You know, he left heaven and he entered into this world and he lived a life that was hard. It says in Hebrews that he had to learn obedience and the things that he suffered. And he did that for us. 
And then on Palm Sunday, he got on that donkey and he rode on that humble steed to his death. He was doing that for us. He was serving us. And then on the cross, he gave up his life and he did that for you and he did that for me. And, and then it says that he is now in heaven interceding for us. And then there's this amazing passage in Luke. It says that when the Lord returns, those servants he finds who are waiting on him, he will wait on them. Jesus spends his entire life waiting on us. He's waiting on us right now. Can't we wait on him? You know, when you see how he is waiting on us again and again and again, it can't help but melt your heart. And you say, yes, Lord, I will wait on you. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would give us the eyes to see the season of waiting, the season of uncertainty, the season where we do not know the outcome as a season where you want to work in incredible ways in our lives and you want to make us into people who have a stability and a strength and a capacity we never had before. We ask, Lord, that you would show us yourself and how you have given so generously to us and that you are waiting on us continually, that you are continuously interceding on our behalf, Lord, that you have lived a life of waiting on us so that we might wait for you. And so, Lord, that we might become single-hearted, that there would be one thing we desire and that we would seek after that we might know you, might walk with you, that we might experience what life is really about, and that is loving you. Amen.